0: As hell and i wanna get Ill. so i go to a place where my chill Bella's out there trying to make that dollar up in sixfold. All right everyone welcome back to another episode of the bored as hell podcast i'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot
1: and i am Andy Wilson aka Citizen Bot also Big Shiny Robot
0: and we've got 3 movies for you today we've got uh, Jesus versus the devil with Risen and the Witch uh, we've got The Race, and then at the very end, we're going to give you some Oscar predictions and also quickly run over uh, who we think should or will win. So, Andy, you got to see uh, both Risen and The Race because they decided to screen those during morning screens here when we're all at work. So talk to us about uh, Risen.
1: So Risen is the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ told through the eyes of a Roman soldier who was present at the crucifixion. If this sounds a little bit like the plot of the fake movie they were filming in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, <laughs> it's because it exactly is. And the- yeah, I was
0: wondering about that, because when I saw the trailer, I'm like, "This! I swore I just saw this last week.
1: <laughs> so it, it was very hard to watch this and not feel like I was watching some sort of self-parody And at the same time, it made me wish for the Coen brothers' dialogue and crispness and scripting and knowing exactly what they were doing. You remember the same week we talked about Hail Caesar, we also talked about Deadpool. And the best thing about Deadpool, they nailed the spirit of their source material. I have not seen a biblical epic in a long time that fails so miserably to get what the source material was really about. And so this rung very hollow to me. Uh, I was actually talking with another one of the critics uh, about this movie and she said, oh yeah, I kind of liked it. It didn't feel like it had a religious message at all. And I'm like, (laughs) so we have a movie about Jesus And you walk away feeling like, oh, yeah, there was no religious message there. I'm like, how do you do that? It's like, pick one of the 44 ways you can interpret Jesus and make a movie about it. Instead, this devolves into a weird kind of CSI Jerusalem as Joseph finds, uh, who's playing this Roman soldier is tasked with tracking down the body of Jesus, and he's aided by uh, Draco Malfoy. And of course, on their back is uh, Peter Firth, uh, who if you ever watched the British drama MI5, uh, he is hairy in all of those. So, a good cast, well acted, actually fairly well directed, great scenery, uh, well put together, but it just, it didn't strike any sort of emotional chord with me. And as it becomes this weird escape story of the Roman soldier helping the twelve apostles flee from the Romans in Jerusalem to get to Galilee, I'm like, this feels more like the boring parts of the Hobbit. Uh, <laughs> and and there you got you got Peter and James and John doubting Thomas and. Biffer and Bomber and Oin and Gloin and Don, yeah, and and I'm like, well, i I don't get this. I don't know what you're trying to do here because this feels like this could have been an emotionally impactful movie, a spiritually impactful movie. And I mean, say what you will about Passion of the Christ. I happen to think it was basically torture porn but at least it had a very specific message and it was giving that very specific message all throughout. And you couldn't help but feel that. So I, I, it makes me wish for the days of the greatest story ever told the robe, Ben her. I'm not saying every movie needs to be a biblical Epic on, uh, on the same level as Ben Hur, but you could have at least tried. So uh, when all's said and done, this is right down the middle. This is a 5 out of 10. Well put together. Um, but, you know, if you're going to take on the death and resurrection of Jesus, try to say something a little bit more cogently.
0: Yeah, the, the general consensus I've picked up from my friends up here, uh, fellow critics, is that, like you said, it's well shot, it's well put together. It's It's good to see a biblical movie that actually or a religious movie that actually has production value to it. Mm -hmm. because there's, especially up here in Utah, and I'm sure you're aware, uh, there's a lot of LDS movies that are catering just to that crowd, like the singles ward and home, you know, home teachers and stuff that really is just pandering. And it's like they they took 20 bucks, a high eight camera and said, we're going to make a movie and it'll sell because everyone will buy it because they're Mormon. And they've done the same thing with, you know, the black exploitation movies and LGBT cinema for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was good to see some production value in the movie. Um, That being said, it was boring as hell. And if you're not a believer, there's probably not much there for you.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that you, there's a way to split the difference and have a movie where it's, it's not necessarily about being a believer, but maybe being able to like the, the essence of this movie should have been, here's a Roman. Who's not a believer. Who is was impressed by what Jesus is and what his message is. And that is exactly what you got in Hail Caesar for just those like two minutes of fake dialogue. And uh, the Cohen brothers have such a better idea of what the message of Jesus is with their tongues planted firmly in their cheeks, a couple, <laughs> a, a couple of Jewish boys totally nailed Jesus in a way that this film completely fails to do. And it's it's just so disappointing. Um, and as someone who can appreciate a secular, secular take on Jesus... And someone who has strong religious convictions about Jesus and the nature of Jesus, it didn't satisfy either of those very well. and and so it and it there's no excuse for being boring. And uh, that that's kind of the cardinal sin of this movie. Yeah,
0: well, um, and speaking of being boring, uh, let's move over to Satan now. Yep. Uh, because this next movie is the kind of the big, anticipated, overhyped, Horror film of the year called *The Witch*. Now, *The Witch* premiered at Sundance last year, and it was uh, one of the most talked-about movies there. And I got to see it back then, and I've not really understood why people liked it back then, and I'm still not getting the hype now. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, *The Witch* takes place back in the 1600s. It's early Puritan times in I believe it was Massachusetts or somewhere in New England, uh, and basically we have this family. Who is kicked out of their settlement for some reason or another? We don't really get why. And they're forced to go out and build a home near the woods and start raising crops. You've got a uh, father and wife, their eldest daughter, Tom Thomason, their adolescent son, Caleb. They've got two creepy fraternal twins named Mercy and Jonas. Uh, and the wife just gave birth to a new baby, Samuel. Well, one day while Thomason is playing peekaboo with Samuel, she goes, opens her eyes again, and the baby is gone. Um, and that we don't really know what happens to it. The family blames her for the baby going missing. We'll come to find out, that there is a witch that lives in the woods right next to them. And she starts kind of harassing the family and kind of making horrible things happen. Uh, the wife kind of forbids everyone to go into the woods, but they, ha- they have to go go hunting. And one day, while Thomason and Caleb are in the woods, they get separated Caleb goes over and sees the witch, who appears as this beautiful, you know, naked young woman, who convinces him to give her a kiss. And when he does, he may or may not get possessed by the devil. Um, Needless to say, he goes home, kind of goes through like a exorcism, coughs up this nasty, bloody apple, praises God, and then dies. And then everything goes to hell, and everyone dies, and. I won't give the ending away because that's what everyone's kind of freaking out
1: about. But yeah,
0: that's that's kind of the
1: movie. Um, but that ending is so, so, so stupid. The, the best so thing I read about it was because here, here's the
0: thing: is is everyone's loving this movie, and I've, I've talked to many people, including critics, who are just lavishing praise on it, saying how it's just this new take on horror and everything else. And there are a couple of good things here, and we'll get to that in a second. But I've been in such the minority by not liking this film. Um, I was reading some reviews and I actually came across one that was critical of it, and they said the ending was as if, as if the guys from Monty Python came, and wrote and did it, but halfway through said F it" and just gave up and wrote a crappy ending. They said it just it was so out there and stupid. So yeah, the ending makes no sense. Uh, I I can see what they were trying to do, I guess, but yeah, it just it's it's boring. Uh, I have a big, big problem with horror movies that rely on lazy jump scares. Now, I don't mean normal jump scares, because I'm a huge fan of slasher films. So when the killer jumps out from behind the, the mirror and stabs you, it makes you jump. That's fine. My thing with lazy jump scares, like what they did with Annabelle, is they'll zoom in really close, the music will swell, and then it'll cut to a scene with a loud noise that has nothing to do with the story and is only there to make you jump. So, for instance, with this film, there's a very specific scene where it does the same thing, and then, boom, snaps to the father chopping wood. And it's a huge noise. makes everyone jump. And there's no purpose for it except to make Ooh. people jump.
1: Yeah. Spooky
0: chopping wood. Oh, oh, oh,
1: spooky, spooky. Uh,
0: and it's just—it's lazy filmmaking to me. And I really, really, it just annoys the crap out of you. Plus, I, I don't know, maybe they adjusted the level since Sundance. But uh, the score was way too loud. And, again, it would push really, really loud to try to get that emotion out of you. Um yeah, it's, I, I will give it credit for the fact that it is beautifully shot. I mean, it makes you really, really feel like you're back in Puritan times. Um, that being said, when the actors are speaking in kind of an old Middle English dialect from back then, uh, make sure they're not mumbling, because I couldn't understand half the damn things they were saying. Um, yeah, it just it's, it's just not good. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, it, it, well, they tried to do a couple of things and they succeeded. That score is very good. The, the cinematography is very good. They did the same thing that The Revenant did, and they only used natural light and candlelight. So that's very good. But a score and atmosphere does not equal scary. And jump scares, especially lazy jump scares, and things that are just kind of creepy and unsettling are not scary. This, this film totally doesn't understand how to make these things really, truly scary. And it felt like, oh, like they were trying to make an actual witch scary on one hand, but then there was this other undercurrent of like, well, actually, what's really scary is Puritanism and religious intolerance and superstition, and this family turning on one another, saying, "Oh, well, you're a witch. No, I'm not a witch. You're the witch." and burn her exactly, and because they're, it's so mixed, they never get down to what's really going on. And if they had, if they had kept this on the single track of witches are real and they're doing terrible things to this family, then that might have been one thing. But they they didn't nail that, and they didn't nail the other theme, and so it's it's so totally muddled. And it's, uh, again, the same unforgivable sin as Risen. It's boring. For a 90-minute movie, I felt like I was in that theater for at least two and a half hours. Oh,
0: yeah, it's it, it feels incredibly long um and yeah there's there's some really cool undercurrents and like you mentioned there's the the whole problem with you know is is there a witch out there which yes there is doing horrible in fact when you learn what it does to the baby that was the most grotesque and horrible scene in the movie that and that was the very beginning which i was like oh that's horrible maybe this will be decent um yeah and then there's the whole family turning on each other and there's some really good themes and ideas there they just never fully realize
1: any of them, and it's it's it kind of leaves you with horror blue balls. <laughs> uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, and it's I the ending was just so unsatisfying. Like seriously, I wanted to yell at the at the screen. Like, really? That's it? That's that's what this is? You can really? fly, you
0: can fly, you can fly.
1: <laughs> And the big reveal on like who's behind it all. And I'm just like, this is so, so dumb. And I, yeah, I, I, it's, I just can't forgive it. I feel like this was a great concept that they, they could have executed well if they had picked a theme and stuck to it. Um, but maybe this is. You know, this is a first-time director, and he also wrote uh, the screenplay based on actual testimony from, uh, you know, people's records and journals and court records about supposed witchcraft in uh, in Massachusetts in the 1600s. So, you know, they were going for authenticity and real scares. If if they had made this more of a film like hey, you know how everybody got scared of witches in Salem? Guess what? There actually were witches out there, and this is the true story of what actually happened, and they'd, they'd stuck with that. I think that would have been a much more satisfying movie, but this just, it was confusing.
0: Yeah, so, you know, this actually did win uh, the Best best Director Award at Sundance last year. Oh. Um uh, and but I think we both kind of agree that the, the technical aspects of the movie are well done. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the lighting, I think the directing's great, the cinematography's there. But unfortunately, it's like, it, it's you've got a skeleton of a great thing, but then you've got a saggy, shapeless mass hovering over it that just kind of destroys any semblance of what could be there, the, the promise of what could have been. So uh, I'm being very, very generous in giving it a three. When I walked out of it, I was talking with a friend of ours from Big Shiny Robot, and I was like, "I was like, can can we give it less than zero? <laughs> um, it's just, it's not good. I, I don't get the hype. I mean, maybe people are just excited to finally see a horror movie that isn't found footage or Paranormal Activity Twenty Seven, um, and I get that. And so, I I think it's a great idea to have movies like this that do something different than the normal, even slasher movie or like I said, found footage, but. There's got to be more to it than what this gives us.
1: Well, and I don't understand why this movie is coming out in February. Why isn't this an October release? Why wasn't this an October release of last year? It's like this... I heard tons of hype around this coming out uh, after Sundance and at Fantastic Fest here in Austin, and people were just gaga over it. It's like, why not give people this creepy atmospheric movie at a time when people are looking for creepy and atmospheric. I could forgive it a little bit more, but every movie that is out right now, I'm like, would I have rather gone and seen Deadpool again? Would I have rather gone and see Hail Caesar again? Would I have rather gone and see Star Wars again? If I can't say that, that it beats any of those films, then and and the answer is an emphatic no, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you haven't done your job as a movie and <laughs> is an emphatic no. So yeah, I'm I'm at a I'm at a three and a half out of ten. So
0: well there you have it. Jesus beats Satan. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> as always <laughs> um, uh, You know who could beat both of them is Jesse Owens. Oh
0: snap, son. Oh. Uh, so
1: so Next, we have uh, actually a film that that I like quite a bit, which is race. Um, uh, Get it? There's a double meaning in (laughs) it because there's racism and uh, he's running a foot race. Anyway, so very clever movie. Thank you for your clever movie title. Um, This is the story of Jesse Owens, who uh, you may or may not know uh, went to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and as uh, Hitler and Goebbels and everyone else was trying to show off how excellent the German Ubermensch Aryan nation was uh, oh. with their their awesome white people, uh, Jesse Owens goes in, breaks a bunch of world records, wins four gold medals, basically uh, spanks their asses. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and and uh, a lot of those records stayed around for a quarter of a decade more. And uh, Jesse Owens, for a long time, was recognized as, and, and should and should be, recognized as one of the greatest U.S. Olympians ever. Uh, so this story can't be understated. It's importance in history and in American history. And uh, this story actually begins uh, about a year and a half before the Olympics as Jesse Owens is enrolling in uh, Ohio State University, and uh, meets his new running coach, played by Jason Sudeikis. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, who I didn't hate in this role, so this is the second movie in a row that Jason Sudeikis has done where I've been very pleased with him. So, so good job. Uh, he does a, a a really great job, uh, not being a smarmy a hole, and um, that's good. Yeah, and and he's. And he's just very good, and he, he tells uh, young Jesse Owens, who's played by Stephen James, who uh, he was in Selma playing John Lewis uh, a year ago. Uh, that was probably the second best performance in that movie. No third best. So he was one of the best parts of Selma, and he's uh, one of the best parts of this movie. But uh, so his, his coach tells Jesse, your start sucks, your form is off, I'm going to teach you how to actually run. I'm going to teach you how to actually work. Uh, You're fast. You're really good. But I'm going to teach you how to be a champion. And so they go through this very long process of qualifying for the Olympics. And uh, there's this second storyline going along of all of the people who are actually trying to get in Jesse Owens' way uh, to going to the Olympics. Um, They're... The NAACP actually asked uh, Jesse Owens not to go and compete. Really? Yeah, they did. And uh, <coughs> because they said it would, be, uh, it would be disrespectful to all of the people who are, are being oppressed by Hitler's regime. And uh, it would bring uh, attention to the oppression faced by African Americans in the United States. Um, And Jesse Owens is like, no, it's exactly the opposite. I can go and I can represent for us, and no one can take away the fact that I'm competing and that I'm sticking it in their faces. And he's right. Um, And let's remember, this is 1930s America, and even though it's Ohio, there's still a lot of racism. Uh, He's still, I mean, there are instances where i mean he's going to segregated restaurants and bathrooms in ohio in the north so this is not like happy times we forget and think that jim crow was only something that happened in the deep south no 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 this was this was all over the place and injustice was everywhere and um continued to be everywhere for many decades to come after Jesse Owens. So uh, there's also a a second storyline of the Olympic Committee deciding themselves of whether to go or not. And there's this power play going on uh, between Jeremy Irons and William Hurt. And uh, they're both making the arguments. Jeremy Irons is saying, yes, we should go. William Hurt is saying, no, we shouldn't. And uh, so they, they elect Jeremy Irons as a sort of goodwill ambassador to go to Germany and meet with the Nazis and say, hey, you guys have to clean all this stuff up. You can't have all these swastikas and signs up that say no Jews allowed and you can't be rounding people up on the street. But we, can have,
0: we can have no blocks allowed back home. That's
1: fine. Exactly. And so that, that's exactly the point that the film is making is the racism that existed in the United States while we are going and saying to the Nazis, like, hey, you guys cut your racism out. Uh, so it's it's very poignant and, and very good. Um, and then there is this kind of subplot to the subplot where you have Joseph Goebbels and Laney Riefenstahl who are... Uh, Goebbels was the head of the Ministry of Information and the guy behind all of the propaganda behind the Nazi regime. And Leni Riefenstahl is a fascinating filmmaker. And she filmed the 1936 Olympics and uh, did actually a really amazing job at preserving it. And if if you've ever seen a movie called Triumph of the Wills, that is... The, one of the best examples of uh, a, a documentary uh, that is, you know, complete propaganda. I mean, we talked about Michael Moore last week. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, like I said, there's only a couple of points difference between Michael Moore and Laney Riefenstahl. Um, so, uh, but those points are very different and you get to see the difference here. Um, Riefenstahl is a very interesting character in this film. And I'm interested in learning more about what actually happened in the power plays between her and Goebbels around uh, filming the Olympics because of what brought this up. The only problem is some of that stuff gets so interesting and you start going down that rabbit hole that you forget about the rest of the movie. And it, it, you know, whenever you have a C subplot that's, that's getting to be more interesting than your A subplot, it's like well, maybe the movie should have just been about that yeah. um, but it, it, the only other problem is too, the guy who plays Goebbels he may as well have put on a giant snidely whiplash mustache and like started twirling it every time he comes on screen <laughs> he, is just, he is just so over the top um, but he's a Nazi, so you can get away with it so, uh, uh, But overall, I thought race was really great. Uh, they, they played up this great angle where Jesse Owens actually uh, becomes uh, friends and lifelong friends with one of the German athletes and uh, brings us back to this good spirit of what the Olympics are supposed to be about rather than what... Hitler and the Nazis were trying to make it about and trying mm. to get this huge political statement uh, so there's a lot of courage on a lot of different levels um, I'm a sucker for an inspirational sports movie and uh, you know this is this is an important piece of history that we should remember and that we should remember in context it shouldn't be yay Jesse Owens we went and and stood up to uh we went and stood up to evil Hitler. We should remember it was not that long ago that our country was in the throes of racism just as badly as theirs. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's really well put together. I really enjoyed my time uh in the theater and I'm at, yeah, like a seven out of 10 on this.
0: Nice. Well, yeah, I heard really good things about it. <clears throat> Again, it was on my list of one I wanted to go see. It just, it's, work's been working being sick has taken it out of me this week so yeah (laughs) all right so we're gonna go ahead and wrap a couple things up here uh you know before you hear us again we will have been had a chance to see the oscars uh so we want to take a couple minutes here and just go over the the top you know main awards and kind of give our thoughts on um, both who we think should win and who based on what we've kind of seen and researched will most likely win uh so andy why don't you start out with uh best cinematography
1: so cinematography, we've got Carol, The Hateful Eight, Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant and Sicario. You know, in my mind this is probably this is probably going to go to The Revenant. I mean, he's won it twice in a row before. That being said, maybe they decide to go for someone new and so either Hateful Eight or Mad Max Fury Road. I think any of those are worthy of it. Um my personal favorite, I kind of have to go with Hateful Eight just because I'm really in love with that 70 millimeter format, but Mad Max Fury Road is not far behind it because the way they were able to capture all of that action and use so little CGI, that is amazing cinematography at its best, and uh, any of those are really deserving
0: yeah so uh i'm with you on that i think the revenant will win um emmanuel lubezki is gonna 3 uh just because he keeps on doing things that we haven't seen before i mean we mentioned like the witch did use ambient lighting uh but the revenant did it in the most grueling horrible <laughs> atmosphere you could ever hope to film a movie in uh with storms and you know snowfall and everything else so uh that'll Still definitely rewarding for that although I am with you that uh, I would love to see John seal from Mad Max win Mad Max was my favorite movie of the year um, and yeah the way they shot it and just the way they were able to pull off all these crazy stunts and made you feel like you're going a million miles an hour you know down a desert highway uh, definitely has my money my vote as far as what should win uh, best of photography but we'll see like I said maybe maybe'll surprise us all but I really really think it's gonna go to the red um so best supporting actress. Who do we have there, Andy?
1: We got Jennifer Jason Lee from Hateful Eight, Rooney Mara, Carol, Rachel McAdams, Spotlight, Alicia Vikander, the Danish Girl, and Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs. Now this is very interesting. Five thirty eight dot com who uh anyone who's a political junkie knows is a website that aggregates polls and so on and has Nate Silver has come up with this algorithm that he uses to uh figure out who's going to win the senate who's going to be elected president so on and so forth they've been doing the same thing with the award shows and they're a split about 50 50 uh in predicting uh the or winslet so that's that's who their money's on i know i would go for jennifer jason lee just because i thought she was great and i i always hate it when there's a year where it's like, yeah, Alicia Vikander, you're nominated for the Danish girl, but really you should be winning it for ex machina. Um, Oh
0: yeah. That's, that's my biggest complaint is that they completely left that out of the field as far as, I mean, for, for the big awards at least, but yeah, ex machina, she was absolutely fantastic in that. And that was the role that she should have Had she been nominated for that. She would have easily been my pick for um, best supporting actress.
1: Yeah. But if I were casting my ballot, I'd go for Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, I think it probably will be one of those two, though, just because I'll trust five thirty-eight.
0: Yeah, um, it'll it'll go to Alicia Vikander, uh, but yeah, again, Jennifer Jason Lee, You know, the last, the, the final act of the Hateful Eight. She just absolutely owns that movie, uh, makes it her own, and just overshadows all these other incredible actors in the room with her. I mean, anyone who can make Sam Jackson look like a, a field mouse in comparison <laughs> definitely deserves to. Uh, um, deserves that award
1: so that's right that's right Uh, so with
0: best supporting actor
1: we've got christian bale for the big short tom hardy in the revenant mark ruffalo in spotlight mark rylance in bridge of spies and sylvester stallone in creed uh 538 has got uh ruffalo and and bale up there um sylvester stallone won the golden globe so i don't know maybe Maybe, maybe, so Stallone wins another Oscar. Um, uh, for me, I thought Rylance was the best the, the best perform the best supporting performance of the year. Uh, I would be happy to see Ruffalo win just because I think Ruffalo is quite possibly the best actor of his generation. I'm saying
0: it's going to go to Stallone. Um, He's actually never won an Oscar. Yeah. Uh, He's only been nominated for Best Actor and for Best Screenplay back for the original Rocky. And I think this is maybe more of a legacy award. Not that he wasn't brilliant in Creed because he was fantastic. Uh, You know, honestly, if it had been any other year um, or any other nomination except for him, I would definitely go with probably Rylance from Bridges Spies because he was fantastic. But uh, Stallone, again, it's his year so.
1: Stallone for sitting on a chair and reading the paper to a couple of gravestones. <laughs> That's what he's getting it for. No, I'm kidding. That, there, there's that really great scene that is, in my mind, the heart of the movie where he's he's looking at uh, Michael B. Jordan in the mirror and he's like, you see that guy right there? That's your toughest opponent. That's who you gotta beat when you're out in the ring. And the look of intensity on both of their faces and they are just in the zone, and uh, it it was one of the best. Uh, one of the best parts of watching that movie was seeing the two of them work with one another. So, uh, yeah, if if Stallone wins, I'm not going to shed any tears. Um, I just I just love for Mark Ruffalo to win an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> he deserves one. Then <laughs> yeah. that way we can be like. Uh, Academy Award winner and the Hulk Mark Ruffalo <laughs> <laughs> um, so actors in the leading role we've got
0: Kate Blanchett for Carol Brie Larson for Room Jennifer Lawrence for Joy Charlotte Rampling for 45 Years and Sturis Ronan for Brooklyn uh, I think it's easy to say we all know it's going to go to Brie Larson for Room uh, everyone's been talking about that performance since the, the the day that movie came out so it's pretty much Brie Larson and the also reigns
1: yeah I, I think so I, I don't think there's much to, to discuss there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then for uh, best actor in leading role, again, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And it's really sad because, uh, well, first of all, it's Brian Cranston for Trumbo, Matt Damon for The Martian, Leo DiCaprio for The Revenant, Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs, uh, Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl. Uh, again, this is absolutely to Leo. Like with Stallone, it's his time. He's been nominated enough times. Uh, he gives an amazing performance in The Revenant and has all of 10 lines of dialogue. So he's the shoe in here for this. It just sucks because the other actors who are in this who are nominated with the exception of Eddie Redmayne for Danish Girl, which I was not a fan of, um, they all give great performances. I mean, Fastbender is Steve Jobs. Like when you're watching him on screen, uh, you feel like you're watching the man who, who the real person up there talking. So he was fantastic. And Matt Damon was just so much fun and just brought uh, Watley to life in The Martian that they both are great contenders. Uh, and it would be interesting, again, to see how this race would play out if uh, if Leo hadn't been in, in the race.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I talked about how Stallone and Jordan were able to work so well together in uh, *In Creed. Acting is reacting. And for Matt Damon to be able to deliver... Matt Damon for him to be able to deliver that performance basically having no one else to interact with most of that movie he's completely alone that's uh that's something that being said uh the same could be said of dicaprio who is mostly alone uh during during his part of the movie as well so uh props to both of them and uh, yeah just cranston and Fastbender are amazing as well so Everyone's a winner in that category. In my
0: mind. Yeah, it's they're all great performances, uh, except for Eddie Redmayne. Um, so, uh, Andy, take us out with directing and then best picture.
1: So for directing, we've got George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road, Adam McKay for the big short, uh, Alejandro, you for the revenant, Lenny Abramson for room and Tom McCarthy for spotlight. Uh, Wow. I I just, I got to go with my heart on this and go for George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road. Um, The Big Short was a great film. Spotlight was a great film. The Revenant was a great film. Uh, Those are certainly all incredibly well-directed, but uh, Mad Max Fury Road was something else, and it was the culmination of so much of George Miller's work, and it was timely. It was It was new and different and it was exciting and it was something that a lot of other Oscar movies aren't, which is popular. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, The Revenant was actually pretty popular. Mm -hmm. It, it, you know, it actually made quite a bit of money in the box office. So, um, but... uh,
0: Even even my parents want to go see it. They (laughs) They don't go see the Rated movies.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, but I think Mad Max Fury Road is that rare popcorn movie that means so much more and and so if i were casting my ballot i'd go for miller um i i think the academy will go with you know you too.
0: yeah and it's funny we have the exact same ideas here uh Inurito will definitely take it although there is this again the small small chance they may give it to george miller just as again kind of that lifetime achievement award i mean I know he's planning to make more Mad Max movies, but it's also getting to where he's he's getting up there in age, and we don't know how much longer he'll be with us. So uh, count on Innuity 2, but it'd be really really cool if George Miller would take it because um, again, Mad Max: Fury Road between the cinematography and the directing was just those were just flawless aspects of that
1: movie. And and then we've got for Best Picture The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max, The Martian, The Revenant room and spotlight uh, again I think it's really in between uh, in between those two and yeah again if I'm casting my ballot I'd, I'd go for Mad Max I think uh, the revenant will win uh, outside shot the big short wins but um, I, I I don't know I it's it's done really well in so many of the other so many of the other award shows, uh, I don't know. Um, but the great thing is all of those movies are great films and I the the only problem I have with these categories is that Inside Out is not in there. I, I think we could have swapped out uh Brooklyn and put in Inside Out.
0: Mm. No, I, I, I agree with you there. Inside Out should have been should have been nominated. And the thing is with the new rules they can have tonight movies. So you can even throw in Inside Out and you'd still you know, be within the rules. Um, this one was kind of the hardest for me to do research on and kind of pick a winner. Um, Revenant is the one to lead, so that's probably what it's going to go with. Uh, but there's some rumblings for both Spotlight and The Big Short. So those could be your, your underdogs that come take it. But I really think it's going to go to Revenant. Um, but I'm right with you. Like I said, Mad Max was my favorite movie last year. Uh, it did things and showed things that I hadn't seen in a movie before. And if I was again voting, that would be my best picture of the year. But uh, I think it's a safe bet to say that *Revenant* will take it in the long run.
1: Yeah. So we'll we'll see. And uh, uh, not, I mean, as soon as. Uh, you hear this, you'll only have a few more days until the Oscars. So uh, we'll we'll see who's right and, and who's wrong. here. You
0: know. And if you follow us on Twitter at The Board is Hellcast, uh, keep an eye out during the Oscars because I will be on there live tweeting. Uh, and the last couple years that I've done this, uh, it's been kind of fun and snarky. So if you enjoy some uh, jokes, maybe a few off-color things that we don't include in our podcast, uh, keep an eye there because I'll be... For all, as long as I can until I have to go to sleep <laughs> making fun of rich people giving themselves golden statues.
1: <laughs> Yay! It's Yay. Our favorite thing. Right. Uh, oh, and white people. Lots and lots and lots of white people. Host, <laughs> hosted by Chris Rock. So exactly. I'm sure we get, we'll get some good jabs at Oscars so white. I certainly hope so. Uh, Alright,
0: so next week we've got Gods of Egypt, Triple uh, Nine, and Eddie the Eagle is uh, going kind of skipping with the the Olympian run, so uh, I think we're kind of, uh, we've already seen one of those and we're already excited to talk to you about it, so until then, hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon Punk ass but it's alright scored a key he's gonna fly Punk ass fly